Am I good now? Okay. Are the cameras rolling? Okay, so we're all... <laughs> there's no songs tonight. So if you were worried about me getting up here and leading you all in that, fear not. Um, Pastor Mike's voice is not well, and so he's asked me to teach for him tonight, and I was glad to. So um, we got quite a Bible study tonight, so I hope you're ready to kind of buckle in and um, elbow the person next to you if they doze off and, and buckle up with me. So we're going to um, just go ahead and jump in. My name is Pastor Ron, for those who may not know me. If you're watching online, glad that you're with us tonight. This is the Bible study on Wednesday night, and we're going to be in Matthew 6. Matthew 6. And let me, uh, let me start with a word of prayer this evening. Father, Lord, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for this opportunity to be in your house. We thank you for the, a chance just to open your word, uh, to be with you, to fellowship with each other once again. Pray be honored and glorified in what's said tonight, Lord. We, we uh, thank you for the rain that we're getting. We pray that uh, it won't get too bad tonight, Lord. And we just uh, pray for those who may be out and about in it, and those who may not be able to make it tonight. We ask your blessing on them. Again, help us as we uh, open your word. Help us to understand it. Help our hearts to receive it, to apply it, to do what you say, um, and to uh, just meet you here, Lord, to uh, come to you tonight and ask for your guidance and for you to teach us and to be humble enough to receive it. We praise you. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Well, I'm going to, uh, again, be in Matthew 6. Specifically, we're going to be looking at very, very familiar passage. We're going to look at verses 9 through 15. If you'll recall, a few weeks ago, I was, uh, I was here, and we were teaching. Uh, I was teaching on Matthew 6, 8 through, excuse me, 5 through 8, and we talked about how you ought to pray, and we covered a few things in that. Well, this is kind of part two of that. I didn't get to the Lord's Prayer that evening, and I realized that I wouldn't. So that's what we're going to do tonight. I have no idea how this is going to go, how long you're going to have to sit here, if I'm going to get done early, if we're going to go late, I don't know. But my goal is to cover from 9 through 15 this evening as we're together. And uh, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I began an exposition of these verses. And, and the more I dug in, I'd, I had intended to cover five through all the way from 5 through 15. And the more I dug into it, there was just so much stuff to talk about from verses 5 through 8. I just cut it off there. And we talked about... <clears throat> kind of the, the private and the public aspects of our prayer life. Um, a few key concepts that, if you were here, that we drilled down on were uh, not being hypocritical in our prayer life, not being fake, being genuine before the Lord, especially, particularly as Jesus is talking about, as we're praying in public. Uh, if you have those opportunities, whether with your family or with a, a group of people, um, Jesus had things to say about public prayer, and he, he gave us the advice on that. Uh, we talked about the importance of private prayer um, in verses uh, 7, 8, and 9. Uh, Jesus talks about that a lot, about how we should have a place of privacy to go before the Lord, um, to close your door and to pray to your Father who sees you in secret. And we talked about being uh, the concept of being genuine in prayer and not trying to appeal to God with what, he, what Jesus referred to as uh, vain repetitions or lofty words. Um, talked about the significance of persistent prayer. Vain repetitions is not what Jesus is referring to when he talks about persistent prayer. There are certain things that we go to God. We talk to him about things over and over again. Things that are on our heart. Um, mentioning them to him often, and that's okay. The Lord loves to hear about our request. And so that was kind of what we, what we covered at that point, I don't want to elaborate too much on it. 
the sermons online if you wanted to go back and, and check that. But today, I wanted to uh, zoom in on what some call the Lord's Prayer, but what might be more accurately called uh, the, the model prayer. And so I wanted to speak to you about that tonight. And uh, in Luke 11, we see that this, um, this example by Jesus was prompted. What, what we don't have recorded for us in Matthew, but what is recorded for us in Luke, is that what prompted Jesus to teach these things about prayer was his disciples um, asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. This was something, one of the, the few times the disciples asked him a specific question related to, um, you could say, doctrine or, a, or, or this matter that we have recorded for. I'm sure they asked a lot of questions of Jesus. You spend three years with the Son of God. I'm sure there's a lot of questions you have for him. But one specific one we have that's recorded for us in the Bible is, Lord, teach us to pray. How, do we, how should we pray? What they saw John's disciples doing, they wanted to do. Lord, teach us, teach us to pray. Um, and we see in this prayer in verses in, in chapter six um, here in Matthew, we see six repetitions, and we're going to talk about that here in just a minute. But there's there's excuse me six petitions, six things that they that Jesus mentions that we can ask God for. Three of those petitions are focused on God, and three are focused on human needs, which leads us to being able to examine prayer really in, in two dimensions that Jesus talks about, about prayer for us in, in this model prayer, in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the two dimensions of prayer being vertical and horizontal, prayer that relates directly to adoring God, um, praising Him, thanking Him, and then other prayer which is horizontal in nature. All of our prayer is directed toward God, but horizontal prayer meaning that it is um, directed towards adoring God, and in some directed towards Im imploring God to act on our behalf, bringing requests to Him, S interceding on behalf of other people. That's the horizontal aspect, that it, it, we, we pray for what's going on around us. Uh, or as one of my, uh, I love reading this guy, he's, he's a Scottish pastor, professor named Sinclair Ferguson, and he puts it this way, what this prayer serves is two purposes, the Lord's Prayer. First, it provides a model prayer, an easily memorized outline that serves as a lesson on, in how to approach God as Father and how we are to speak with Him. And second, it serves as an outline of the whole Christian life by providing, providing certain fixed points of concern for the family of God. It underlines life priorities and it helps us get them into focus. In other words, what he's saying is, is that the Lord's Prayer serves the purpose of teaching us how to address God, how to adore Him, how to praise Him in our prayer life, but also teaches us how we should prioritize the things in our life, how we should have certain fixed points of concern in our life that we're going to God and we're imploring Him on behalf of those things and on behalf of others in our life. So it helps us get our priorities in focus. What should we pray for? Well, the things Jesus tells us to pray for should take priority. And so that's, that's what we're going to discuss tonight, these two dimensions of prayer. I don't have a handout for you, but there's really only two points. We're going to talk about the vertical dimension of prayer, prayer that starts with God. And we're going to talk about the horizontal dimension of prayer, prayer that where we go to God and we share our requests with Him, share things with Him. And so let me read this passage. We're just going to uh, jump right in. I'm going to read. I'm going to read from 5 all the way through 15 just so we can kind of recap 
everything that we covered, but we're going to zoom in on verses 9 through 15. So let's begin in verse 5, Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the, secret, at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then tonight's focus. Pray then like this. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And that's the reading of God's Word tonight. Some of you, I do want to point this out in verse 13, you may have had the, the phrase, really, it's a doxology that would have ended this prayer that says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I don't, I'm not skipping that. Some of your translations may actually have that in verse 13. So I'm not skipping that. I'm going to come back to that later. It's not in all translations, and I'll tell you why when we get to that point. But, so first let's zero in on verses, really looking at verses 9 and 10, as we talk about the vertical uh, dimension of prayer. How prayer, prayer starts with God. Prayer starts with God. And there's three things really <clears throat> that we see in this dimension of prayer that Jesus teaches us about. The first thing when it comes to the vertical dimension of prayer, how prayer starts with God, is that we, we acknowledge His character. We acknowledge who He is, and we acknowledge His character. If you look again at verse 9, Jesus begins this model prayer by reminding us of who God is. He's our Father. Jesus is drawing the disciples towards this relational aspect of God's character. In the, in the Greek, the term is pater, or it's Abba in the Aramaic. That's probably what Jesus would have said, because he spoke Aramaic, Abba. Uh, it's an important place to start. God is our Father. He is our Father. He is the source of life. He's the originator of life. It's by His power that we're born of flesh. It's by the power of His Spirit that we're born again unto salvation. He is committed to us like a good father, to upholding our life and to sustaining our life. That's what a father does. He looks after his children. So it's a very intimate connection that God has with his people, and that's what Jesus is zeroing in on here. Praying to God as father conveys, conveys warmth. It conveys authority. Children go to their father because they know their father can, can act, right? They know their father can do Something may not always do what they ask, but they know he can. Intimacy conveys intimacy, conveys trust. You go to God because you trust him. We pray to him because we know as our father that he, he listens to us. We trust him. We start there because it's here in acknowledging God as father. It's here that we acknowledge that prayer is not primarily about me or it's not about you or it's not about anyone else. It's about God. God, He is our Father. And you notice Jesus uses that, that plural word, plural pronoun, I think, on purpose. I think Jesus uses this phrase, our Father, intentionally to convey that we are not, 
we're not in this alone. When we pray to God, we're praying to a God who's father of all uh, of his people and we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're part of a family and what we have in common if we don't have anything else in common. And the early church certainly um, had several, several things that they would have had a lot of differences about. You've got Jews and you've got Gentiles all coming together to worship the Lord and they're coming from different backgrounds, different places. Many times they spoke different languages. But here we have where Jesus is saying that God is our Father, being part of a family, that we have God as Father in common, no matter what background you may come from or how uh, you came to know the Lord or where you are right now. When we start by acknowledging God first in our prayers, we put ourselves we kind of put ourselves on the shelf for a bit. We kind of take ourselves out of the equation while we enjoy fellowship with God himself. Um, Al Mohler, who, again, he's uh, president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He's also the author of a small book. I should have brought it. It's a very small, very powerful book, though, that he wrote on the Lord's Prayer. Um, <clears throat> he says that the problem of overemphasizing that we have a problem of overemphasizing ourselves in prayers. How many of you kind of dive right in to your own personal needs, the things that are weighing you down without taking time to acknowledge who it is you're talking to when it comes to your prayer life? So Al Mohler says that we have this problem of overemphasizing ourselves in prayer. He tells the story, and I love this story, of how uh, someone once wrote famous British theologian G.K. Chesterton and asked him, G.K., what is the problem with the world? As, as he saw it, what's, what's the main problem with the world? And as you can imagine, there's probably a million things that Chesterton probably could have answered. You could probably answer a million things to that too. There's so many problems. But Chesterton famously responded simply, I am sincerely yours, Chesterton. And that was his only response. So what's the biggest problem and the biggest hindrance in our prayers? Well, we could blame a million things. Distractions come at us from a lot of different places. But the short answer is, I am. I am my own biggest hindrance when it comes to my fellowship with God. So we begin by referencing God. And when we begin by reverencing God, acknowledging who he is as our father, it puts me in my place and it elevates him to his proper place. So that's where, that's where Jesus starts this prayer. Our father in heaven. He acknowledges who God is and where God is located at in this position of authority, high, lifted up, separate from us, which is where Jesus comes to this first petition, this first request, hallowed be your name, or as some of your translations may put it, he's asking, Jesus is saying, your name be honored as holy. Your name be honored as holy. So what, is, what does Jesus mean by this? What is he trying to teach us by saying, our Father in heaven, the first request, hallowed be your name. Your name be declared, your name be honored as holy. What did he mean by this? Well, the word hallowed means to make holy or to consecrate or to sanctify. It conveys this idea of setting something aside as precious or sacred. And Jesus says that in our prayer life, that we ought to pray that people everywhere would set aside the name of God as holy, precious, and sacred. Think about that for a minute. Jesus says that in our prayer life, that we ought to pray, one of our requests should be, or at least the posture of our heart, should be that everywhere, that people everywhere would set aside the name of God as holy, precious, and sacred. We ought to pray that he would be worshipped everywhere as he ought to be. We should pray that the name of God be lifted up uh, to a proper place in every corner of the globe. Now, we know that he's not. 
right? We know that God is not worshipped on every corner of the globe. We know that there's many places in this world where God's name has never even been mentioned, let alone worship. But Jesus is saying that our request should be that he be treated with the highest honor, that he be glorified among his people and all the nations. So what does this mean for us personally in our own prayer time? Well, it means that when we, that we pray, we admire and we esteem, we honor, we revere and treasure and value God's name above everything else. All other petitions in this prayer really flow from this one. God's name be honoring as holy. John Piper says that nothing is more clear and unshakable to me than that the purpose of the universe. Think about this. I read this quote as I was studying this passage and I came across this quote in one of the commentaries that I was reading. But Piper says, nothing is more clear and unshakable to me than that the purpose of the universe is for the hallowing of God's name. His kingdom comes for that. His will is done for that. Humans have bread sustained life for that. Sins are forgiven for that. Temptation is escaped for that. Everything God does in the universe is done so that we might look on him and say, you are holy, you're worthy, you are so high above everything and anything else. So kind of feel the weight of that petition just for a moment. It's a very important petition. Everything else God does for us that we're going to come to in these other petitions, everything else that he does for us, he does it so that his, na- his name may be hallowed, so that his name in our own lives and in other lives, that his name may be hallowed, it may be lifted up, it may be honored as holy, and that he may be exalted. There's, there's so many attributes that we could list to describe God. He's gracious, he's forgiving, he's all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, providential, merciful, just, good, patient, kind. God is all of those things, and we could praise all of those attributes. As a matter of fact, in our prayer life, sometimes it's okay to take an aspect of God, an attribute of God, and just praise him for that particular thing, whatever God is revealing to you in his word that day. But all that flows from his complete set-apartness, his holiness, God's holiness is the chief aspect of his character. Everything about him points back to his glory, to his holiness. And so a question we should ask in our time of prayer is are we taking time in prayer to adore God and to stand in awe of who he is? You may not vocalize it the same way that Jesus does here, but do we take time to praise his holiness? It's it's a wonderful request Al Mohler again says that when we petition God to honor his name as holy, what we're asking is that God to so move and act in the world that people everywhere value his glory, esteem his holiness, and treasure his character above all things. In other words, we want people to see God and we want them to be saved. And that's part of the purpose of evangelism. It's part of the purpose of world missions, why we as a church and as a denomination send people all over the globe to tell other people about Jesus, to share Christ with others, is because at at the end of the day, we are sending people to share Christ with people who do not know Christ because God deserves their worship. He deserves to be worshipped in parts of the globe where he is not known nor worshipped right now. When we pray, God, your name be declared holy, your name be lifted up as holy, what we're praying for is that God would move not only in our own hearts that we might see that, and in the life of our church, that we all may see that together, but that God may move in such a way that his word goes forth and that his people go out 
and that people come to know Christ and that God's name may be declared as holy in parts of the world where he is not right now. It's a massive prayer when you think about it. To ask that God's name be hallowed, his name be declared, his name be lifted up as holy. So that's the first thing Jesus wants us to see. The first petition. Acknowledge God's character, acknowledge his holiness, and pray, petition God, that he may make his name known, his fame known, in all parts of the globe. <clears throat> Which leads to this, the second part of this request in verse 10, where Jesus says that we uh, should seek for God's kingdom to come. That's what a request, your kingdom come, your kingdom come, Lord, bring your kingdom. So to put this request simply, Jesus is calling for his people to pray for the advancement of God's kingdom on earth, for the advancement of God's kingdom. As you can see how that's connected, right, to the first request. Your name be honored as holy. If his name is going to be declared holy, what's got to happen? Well, his kingdom must advance. People must come to know him. It is teaching us to seek the kingdom first. The reality of our time is that we live in an already and a not yet spectrum regarding the kingdom, right? It's been inaugurated at the coming of Christ. It is advancing even now through the mission of God given to the church, but it's not yet consummated. Like we don't physically see the kingdom. The new Jerusalem has not fallen down from heaven yet and rested itself on a recreated earth for all of eternity. The kingdom has not come even though we're in the midst of it now. So there's an already not yet aspect of God's kingdom. It's not consummated. It's inaugurated. We're spreading it, but it's not consummated. And that will not happen until the second coming of Christ. So we, we live in this in-between. Um, St. Augustine, early, early, early church father, wrote a book called The City of God. And in it, he discusses this dilemma. He sees the world as a place where two kingdoms simultaneously reside, right? The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world the kingdom of God organizes everything under the banner of God's sovereignty and his providence. God's holiness and authority define that kingdom. But the other kingdom is dominated by man and man's wisdom, and in it man is sovereign, or at least thinks he is, and worldly lust and authority dominate it. So Jesus is saying that we ought to pray for the advancement of the first kingdom, the kingdom of God, to overtake the kingdom of man. That's ultimately what we want. We want Jesus to reign in our hearts. We want Jesus to reign in the world. We want wickedness and evil to be dispelled. So we should not only pray for its advancement, but we should pray for its consummation. Lord, your kingdom come. That's Jesus' request. Lord, your kingdom come. So what does this look like? It, it means that even now, Christ is ruling in the hearts and lives of his people. There is not a moment where Jesus has not been king. I hope we realize that. Jesus is eternal. Even before he was incarnate in flesh, born of Mary, and lived on this earth, Jesus always was. There has never been a moment where Jesus was not. He's always been king. He's always ruled and reigned. But now he's ruling especially through the hearts and lives of his people. And it means that that reigning presence of Christ is evident in his church. We worship our king. We follow our king. We're devoted to our king. So how do we see the kingdom come? Well, we increasingly reflect his love, obey his laws, honor him, and do good for all people, and primarily we proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Where we are ambassadors of the king, we go and we share the good news of the king with others so that they may come under his sovereignty, be saved, and the kingdom expand. So according to uh, Danny Aiken, who wrote another um, 
commentary that I consulted, uh, this request for God's kingdom to come is twofold. It means that I'm asking God to rule and reign in my life right now. I'm asking him to rule in my life right now, but I'm also, I pray and I long for the day when his glorious name is honored as holy among the nations throughout the universe. So this, this is a selfless prayer. What I'm saying is I want the cause of Christ to advance, not mine. I want to see his kingdom flourish, not mine. I want to see his banner fly high above every people group on the globe as his rule extends and his worship extends. So as this kingdom spreads, so does the adoration of the king. He is worshipped. As God's kingdom expands, Christ is worshipped. <clears throat> so when God first established his kingdom through Adam and Eve, go back to Genesis 1 and 2 for that, it was perfect. Right? But the fall left it marred, and the advancement of the kingdom and the adoration of God was temporarily, it was disrupted. And so was man's fellowship with God. God is not praised on every corner of the globe today, but we should long for that. That's what we pray for when we say, your kingdom come. We long for a day where Christ's name is famous everywhere, that he is praised everywhere, because one day he will be. And this is the work of every individual believer, the local church and global missions, is to see the kingdom come. God has given us the greatest weapon that's ever been deployed, if you think about it, in spiritual warfare. God has given us the greatest weapon ever deployed with the sword of the Spirit with his word. We get a beautiful picture of what the kingdom consummated looks like when you look at, if you can flip there if you want to, Revelation chapter 7. So what does the kingdom consummated look like? What are we praying for? What does that look like when we say, God, Lord, your kingdom come? Revelation 7 verse 9 through 12 says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, the whole world, all people adoring God. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They all fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God, forever and ever. Amen. That's what kingdom come looks like. That's what kingdom consummated looks like. That's what we pray for when we ask God for his kingdom to come. But we're asking for it to advance now through the spreading of the gospel, through the church, for his kingdom advancing until we see that one day. So until that time, until God's kingdom is consummated, we pray the prayer of Jesus, Lord, your kingdom come. And the prayer of John at the end of Revelation, amen, come Lord Jesus. And we just keep praying it until we see him every day. We come Lord Jesus, Lord, your kingdom come. More so every day. We can almost feel it, it seems like, more every day. Lord, your kingdom come. And we just keep praying it, keep praying it, and keep praying it until we see him one day. The third petition that is d devoted to this vertical aspect of prayer is that Jesus tells us that we should strive for his will, God's will, to be accomplished. Strive for God's will to be accomplished. So that's the third vertical petition. Your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Which, by the way, as God's kingdom spreads, so does his will, so does his purposes. So what does this mean? Well, I believe the Bible refers to, it refers to God's will in two ways. One is his hidden will and his revealed will. 
We won't talk much about the hidden will of God tonight because it's hidden. <laughs> this is His revealed will. But there's two aspects of it. His hidden will is the secret counsel among the Trinity. It's what God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit share amongst each other. It's their counsel together among the Trinity. It's the will only known to God. It's what's in His heart. But His revealed will, which is everything that we need to know, His revealed will is what He has made known God's Word reveals God's purposes to us. He tells us what He plans to bring about. He tells us what He expects of His people. He wants us to be informed about who He is and what He has done, is doing, and will do. That's the mystery of the Gospel. God making His secret will, His hidden will, known regarding Christ and His plan of redemption through Jesus. So this is a prayer, your will be done. This is a prayer that we acknowledge the will of God. And we seek to do it in our own lives individually, in the church corporately, and we share it so that it may become known among those who are lost. Romans 12.2 actually teaches us how we can come to know the will of God. In this verse, Paul states, again, Romans 12.2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So this is, to me, it's a very powerful verse. When I first came to this church and uh, took on this role of uh, associate pastor of education and began working with the Sunday school classes of the church, I kind of adopted Romans 12 too as kind of a, a guiding verse, a leading verse, um, a mission statement, you could say, for what we hope to accomplish <clears throat> through our Sunday school classes and really in all discipleship ministries here at the church to help people not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of their mind. How does that happen? By the word of God, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. That as people come under the instruction of God's word, the things of this world begin to fade away, the things of God begin to rise in their heart, that they cherish them, they love them through the studying of God's word and the teaching of God's word, so that when testing times came, come up, when temptation comes, they're able to discern what God's will is. That's his purpose. It's a very powerful verse. Jesus instructs us to pray that God's will, as it's carried out perfectly in heaven, might also be done among us on the earth. Of course, we don't do it perfectly. There's so many things that can keep us from knowing and doing the will of God. So many pitfalls. Paul says the first step in doing this, the first step in beginning to know and to follow God's will, is to reject any conformity whatsoever to the world. Because the world would crush you. Why would we seek conformity to the world as believers in the Lord Jesus? Things go very astray in the life of the church and in the life of believers when they start to do things that resemble the world. We're different. We're weird. We're foolish according to the world. There's no worldly wisdom program or strategy that will ever advance the kingdom of God. Think about that. There's nothing that we can adopt from the world. There's no worldly wisdom program or strategy that we could ever adopt as the church that's going to advance the kingdom of God? Why would we look outside of the word of God for help in advancing the kingdom of God so that we might carry out the will of God? It's really crazy when you think about it, but it happens too often in churches. No, Paul says that we must reject conformity to the world and embrace what God is doing in us. He's transforming the way that we think. He's transforming the things that you love. God's transforming you as a complete person. The things you love, the things you think about, 
what you say. He's transforming you from the inside out, giving you a new heart and a new mind through the power of his word. He's renewing us daily through his word, through prayer. He wants us to be able to discern his will. That's the purpose. He wants us to be able to understand what he would have us to do and then empower us to actually do it. And this, this won't be perfect. You know, Jesus prays for God's will to be done and we know it's not going to be perfectly done until he comes back. But we should be gradually increasing in our understanding of God's will and purposes and daily striving with his help to actually carry them out. Then one day when the kingdom comes, the reality of earth and heaven will come together finally in his kingdom that will have arrived and God's will will perfectly be expressed and carried out for all of eternity. So your kingdom come, your will be done. There's, there's kind of an end times dimension to this that I'll cover in a minute. So this prayer is not only teaching us what we should do today, but it's helping us look forward, right, to the end of all things. It's helping us look forward to a time when God's name will be hallowed as, as holy. It'll be declared holy all over the globe. There is coming a time where his kingdom will come and it'll be here forever. It'll never go away. There is coming a time where God's will will be carried out perfectly among his people. That time's not now, but we're praying for that. We're seeking that. We're hoping for that. And that's the purpose of these vertical dimensions of prayer. Now, there's a lot more to this, but for the sake of time, we'll move on. Because Jesus is also teaching us the second point tonight, the horizontal dimension of prayer, how prayer is sharing with God your heart. Prayer is sharing with God the request of your heart. So, so moving on here, we look at verses 11 through 15. And the first thing we see is that Jesus says, it's a simple phrase, give us this day our daily bread. So the first thing when it comes to this horizontal dimension of prayer is that we share and we ask for our daily needs. God wants us to come to him and to ask, to request, to petition him for our daily needs. God in his providence knows what I need on a daily basis. He knows what you need on a daily basis. It's probably the most simple of all the petitions here. There's, this is the fourth petition, if you're following along, the fourth petition. It's the most simple of all of them, but it shows profound trust in the providence of God. Lord, give me what I need today. Not tomorrow, not 10 years from now or 15 years from now. Lord, give me what I need today. And every day is different, isn't it? Every day what we need is a little bit different. I'm not just talking about physical things like bread, food, water. I'm talking about spiritually. Everything, the things that we need are different. We don't know when we get up in the morning what exactly we may need to get through that day. But God does. I go back to Al Mohler again on this. He states that this request serves as a clear and unmistakable reminder that we are merely creatures. God's the creator. We are needy. He's the provider. God has designed humans to be dependent, and particularly he's made us to be dependent on him. None of us can live life in a vacuum devoid of other people, devoid of fellowship, particularly fellowship with God. We're so needy. We're so needy, and we don't have the ability in and of ourselves to meet our own daily needs. We depend on God. Now, some of you, I know raised in the South, we have a very strong work ethic. Most of us do. A lot of you were raised with a strong work ethic. So you may think, I work hard for everything that I've got. I put food on my table. I put clothes on my kids' backs. There's a roof over our head. I pay for that. I work hard for that. And that may be true, and I hope it is true, but who makes sure that your heart keeps beating while you wake up and go to work every day? Who makes sure that your lungs continue to expand and bring in the needed amount of oxygen that you need to survive and to thrive? 
Who continues to make sure that all your synapses and nerves throughout your nervous system continue to fire and signal to your body how it should react to the environment around it? <clears throat> Who can see the end from the beginning and knows what you're about to step into that day long before you ever open your eyes in the morning? So we should never reach a point where we think we don't need God for the very simple daily things. It's not possible without him. Every day, we need to say, Lord, give me what I need today. Give me what I need today. And this petition is also Jesus reminding us not to think too deeply about tomorrow, right? Don't borrow worry or trouble for tomorrow. God doesn't give you what you need 10 years from now. Now, this isn't saying you shouldn't plan ahead. Don't be procrastinators, okay? A lot of us, I know I was. I was a chronic procrastinator in college especially, Seminary changed that completely for me. If you didn't plan out in seminary, you'd flunk pretty quick. But I was a procrastinator in high school and in college. So this isn't telling us not to plan ahead. Plan. But don't depend on tomorrow. Trust God for today. Trust him for tomorrow. God doesn't give us what we need 10 years from now. No, he gives us what we need today. Lord knows that if he gave me today what I would need 10 or 15 years from now, I would probably squander it, every bit of it. Give me what I need now, Lord. And what I need now more than anything is Jesus, the bread of life. And this is what Jesus says about himself in John 6, 32 through 35. He says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always as if this was real bread you could consume and eat. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. So when we pray for daily bread, we're really not just praying for things that we need physically today, to get through today. We're, we're asking Jesus, give me yourself. Give me you. I need you more than I need anything else to get through this day. And that's a blessing that God gives us every day. So give us today our daily bread. What do we need today? That's the, that's the first horizontal petition. The second petition is found in verses 12, and then kind of Jesus elaborates it on it again in verses 14 and 15. Jesus says that we should confess sin and we should forgive sinners. We should confess sin and we should forgive sinners, or debt and debtors, depending on your translation. The concept is the concept of forgiveness, forgiveness of debt. So in the same way that God desires for our bodies to be renewed each day, he also makes provision for our souls to be renewed each day as well. So in the same way that I should not go a single day, unless you're fasting, but in the same way I should not go a single day without food, I should not also go a single day without confession. So this petition emphasizes our most urgent spiritual need, saying that we owe a debt to God means that we failed to give him the obedience that he's rightly due. So there's, there's really, I think there's three amazing truths to point out as to why Jesus says that this aspect of being forgiven, confessing our sin to God, and going to others who have wronged us and forgiving them, that's two parts of it, right? Forgive me my sins, forgive those who have sinned against me, right? Forgive me of my sins and help me to forgive those who have sinned against me. There's three things that I think Jesus wants us to learn from this request. One is that it causes us to look daily at our own sin. It reminds us that we had a debt before God that we could not pay, 
yet Christ paid it for us. So I think what Jesus is calling us to do here is to think daily of what God did in order to declare us forgiven. We're reminding ourselves when we ask for forgiveness, we're reminding ourselves that we really are forgiven. And asking for this daily forgiveness, we're recalling to our own mind that we're in, we are forgiven. And in order for that to be true, Christ had to become accursed and to die one of the most horrible deaths imaginable. Every sin of God's people was covered by the blood of Jesus. Every sin. Every sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. So every sin that we confess, we should mourn that sin. That's what Jesus is calling us to do, is to think deeply about what God has done for us in Christ. Every time that we confess, every sin we confess, we should mourn that sin because there was a drop of the blood of Jesus that had to be shed in order to cover that sin. Sometimes we don't confess daily because we don't want to acknowledge that before God. We don't want to acknowledge who we are. We often, we, all, we don't confess daily because, and by the way, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't command us to do this because we're going to become lost again if we fail to do this. I don't, that's not what Jesus is teaching. No, Christ has settled that. He settled our accounts. We're forgiven. We don't have to do this daily in order to be saved. We are forgiven. Christ settled the account. It was nailed to the cross with him. The certificate of debt is blank. If you're in Christ, it's blank. There's no, there's no debt. No, we confess daily to remain in fellowship with God and to draw near recalling and being grateful for all that, all that he did so that we could be forgiven. Which leads to the second truth from this petition. So when we ask God to forgive us, what we're doing is it causes us to despise sin all the more. It, it should cause us to despise sin all the more. Matthew Henry says that when we ask for forgiveness, we're taught to hate and to dread sin while we hope for mercy and distrust ourselves and rely on the providence and the grace of God to keep us from it. So sin hinders our fellowship with God. We ought to despise anything that would hinder us from the life-giving, soul-satisfying, and sustaining presence of God. So when we confess sin daily, we're saying, I hate this deed, I hate this thought, I hate this word or these series of actions that's kept me from you today, Lord. Forgive me so that my conscience can be clear and I might see you for who you are and draw near because that's what I need most today. So daily confession teaches us to despise sin and to cling to the mercy of God. And lastly, it causes us to be gracious and merciful to those who have wronged us. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive those who have debts against us. So when we confess this, when we pray this petition, it causes us to be gracious and merciful to those who have wronged us. So if, if Christ has forgiven our massive, insurmountable debt before him, now how can we not extend that mercy and forgiveness to others whose debt against us is paltry compared to what we owed Christ? So after all, we didn't earn our own forgiveness, nor will anyone who owes a debt earn ours, right? Is that, is that our expectation? Do we wait on somebody to earn forgiveness before we grant forgiveness? We better be glad God didn't do that with us. That's the essence of forgiveness. It's offered in mercy to people who have no ability to repay. Think about that. That's the essence of forgiveness. It's offered in mercy to people who have no ability to repay. That's the wonder of the gospel. It humbles all human pride and destroys any notion of self-righteousness. So 
Note, note two, and we can see this in verses 14 and 15. God takes very seriously unwillingness to forgive, as we can see in verses 14 and 15. I, I, and I should say a caveat here. I don't think verses 14 and 15 are talking about our overall forgiveness and our standing before God. It's not as if He will remove our salvation if we fail in a single instance, in one single moment, to forgive when we should have. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. That's contrary to the Word of God and not supported by Scripture. But what I do think Jesus is getting at is that it is vital to your own soul, day to day, to forgive so that you will feel deeply the sense of being forgiven by God. In other words, it has to do with our daily fellowship. All, also, our, our willingness to forgive is also fruit and it's proof of the forgiveness that God has granted us. It's fruit of our own forgiveness. Uh, this is illustrated very well, I think, in Matthew chapter 18. You can flip there if you want. I'm not going to read all of it because it's a lengthy story. But in Matthew 18, Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Uh, this servant's master had forgiven him after he begged and pleaded. The master took mercy on him. And the master uh, forgave him a very insurmountable debt and set him free, an amount of money that the man would never be able to come up with. Just forgave it and set the man free because he had mercy on him. This guy, once he was released by the master, he ran into another guy who owed him a small amount by comparison to what he owed his master. But the man was unable to pay, and so the servant, who had just been forgiven, had him thrown in prison. So after this, the master found, finds out, and the unforgiving servant had done this, and he threw him back into prison. If you'll remember the story, it's a picture that God will... Is, is this a picture that God's going to turn his back on those he has forgiven if they fail to forgive? No, I don't think that's the answer. What I think this is teaching us is that one who fails to forgive or one who daily exhibits a habit of spirit of unforgiveness or contains a spirit of unforgiveness towards others may not actually be forgiven by God. They're not displaying the fruit of one who's been forgiven. So I think this is a warning to us for two reasons. One, to fail to forgive means that we will be out of daily fellowship with God. And until that bitterness is laid down and that debt forgiven, in your own heart, your spiritual life will be hindered. And two, I think it's a warning because it reminds us that when we fail to forgive, we're acting like our old sinful self. We're not displaying the fruit of being a believer. And to the lost and dying world, we don't look any different than them. Again, I love how Al Mohler phrases this. The kingdom of God is no place for the malice of unchecked bitterness. We'll read that again. because It's so important for us that we, that we know this. The kingdom of God is no place for the malice of unchecked bitterness. The king himself makes us citizens by forgiving us. And thus the kingdom's citizens forgive one another. That's what we do. We act in accordance with what God has done for us. He forgave us a massive debt. We forgive those who have debts against us. We don't harbor it against them. God loves to forgive. He loves to forgive his own. His capacity to forgive will always surpass our need of forgiveness. And we'll say that again. His capacity to forgive will always surpass our need of forgiveness. Or as Richard Sibbs, an old Puritan, says, there's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. So 
So God help us. This is something he has to help us do. God help us forgive as we ought to do. God help us live as the forgiven by forgiving. So forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. That's the fifth petition. So we come now to the, to the sixth and the final petition. He says, deliver us or lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one, depending on some of your translations. But the petition is simply deliver us from temptation and Satan. Deliver us from temptation and Satan. So the last part of this prayer is that we desperately need to rely on God for the strength to fight. We desperately need to rely on God for the strength to fight. As Paul says in Ephesians 6, we're locked in a spiritual battle, not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of darkness. God has given us everything that we need to win, but we must rely on him daily for strength for the fight. The Greek word for uh, temptation here can also mean to be tested or to be tried. Scripture is clear that God does not tempt any man. James tells us that in the book of James, the letter of James. God does not tempt any man. But we're sometimes allowed to go through trials. We and Satan in our own flesh might lead us astray and tempt us to betray our new identity in Christ. That's possible. Our flesh leads us the wrong way all the time. Satan tempts us to go the wrong way all the time. Jesus is teaching us the reality of two things in this petition. One... None of us are immune from trials and temptations. None of us are immune from that. They will come. It's not the question isn't, will I be tempted? It is, when will I be tempted and how? And our petition is, Lord, when I'm led astray by my own indwelling sin and desires, please provide deliverance. Provide a way out. Give me strength to stand. So this petition also makes us aware of an outside spiritual force who would love nothing more than to destroy us and our walk with Christ and to see our witness crumble. This is happening far too often in many churches around us. Satan is the tempter, the accuser. He's a liar. Only God can help us stand against the reckless hate that Satan and his demons have for God and those that have been purchased by the blood of Christ. And we'll read that again. Only God can help us stand against the reckless hate of Satan and his demons that they have for God and for those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. We possess the one thing that they never will, which is salvation. And we are destined for a kingdom that they will never set foot in. Satan and his demons hate us. While we live on this earth, we're in a, we're in a wartime mentality spiritually. Paul talks about that again in Ephesians 6, if you want to go, go read that. So when it comes to temptations and Satan... We're in a wartime mentality. One commentary says Satan's wartime goal is to discourage us, defile us, devour us, and defeat us. And without the Lord's guiding us through the minefield of these demonic devices, we're certain to be defeated. And that's very true. You and I cannot fight that battle on our own power. So this is a prayer to be prayed every day. It's a reminder that while our salvation is very secure in the arms of Christ, our daily witness is constantly under attack. You are at war with two things the flesh within you, and demonic spirits without. And we need God in this battle. We need God in this battle. We have to remember the truth of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Paul is teaching the church. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Why? 
But the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That doesn't mean that God's gonna, not going to throw us things that we can't handle in our own strength. None of this we can handle in our own strength. What this does mean when it says that he's not going to let you be tempted beyond your ability is that means he's going to come alongside you and he's going to provide you a way out that you may be able to endure. I should also say this too. One of the obvious answers to this prayer is that God has provided us for us to fight temptation. One of the things, one of the key things that he's provided for us is what you're sitting in right now and the people that are, you're among at this very moment. So one of the obvious answers to this prayer that God has provided each one of us to fight temptation is the local church. God has given us each other. We're in this fight together. That's why we ought to take, not take each other for granted. And during this wartime, we must learn to lean on each other. We're fellow soldiers in the fight. God has given us each other to help us fight. And what better way when we call on each other to pray, when you text somebody or you call somebody and you say, this is what I'm going through, please pray for me. They're asking you to go to war for them. That's what they're asking. Satan is fighting them. Their own flesh is fighting them. And they're saying, help me. Go to God. Intercede for me. I, don't, I can't think of a better thing that we can do for each other than that when it comes to fighting this fight together. Many of us are not willing to open up to others so that they actually know we're in a battle. That's why we have to trust each other and communicate, share our needs, confess with each other what's going on in our lives. People can't pray for you things they don't know about. So here's the conclusion to this. This prayer should serve as a model of what the posture of our hearts should be like daily before the Lord. Not every time you pray do you have to work through each aspect of these six petitions rigidly. This, there's no reason to be legalistic about following this pattern every time. But throughout the day, we should be reminded, at least reminded, of these six things. There's a vertical dimension, there's a and there's a horizontal dimension to our prayer life. And sometimes we may pray and we may just spend time adoring God and we may not ask for anything. And that's okay. Sometimes we get a text or we get a call from a close friend who desperately needs us to pray about an issue, so we stop everything that we're doing and we go straight into intercession for them. And that's okay too. This is a model prayer. It's not a rigid formula to follow each time you pray. So when you go to God and you begin by interceding for someone, you're acknowledging that God is your Father who is holy and who has a perfect will that you desire to see accomplished. So when you just simply adore God, you're trusting that He already knows all the needs of your heart and He's going to provide for you as a good Father, even if you don't list out everything that's on your heart that day. He knows it and you can trust Him to know it. At the end of the day, this prayer is pointing us towards God. It's drawing us closer into fellowship with Him, and it's calling us to trust Him with our daily needs, forgiveness, and aiding us in this battle with sin and Satan. And as we continue to do that, we look for His kingdom to come. In a lot of ways, as I mentioned earlier, this prayer is, is it's, uh, it's end times focused. I'm trying to say eschatological, but it's a really hard word to get out. When you're this far into the teaching, I'm almost an hour in. That's a big word for me to say right now. But it's very end times focused in many ways. It's focused on Christ who is returning, who is even now, by the way, interceding for you and I. Christ does, he never stops interceding for his people. He's not commanding us to do something that he's not doing every minute of every day on your behalf. So it's focused on Christ who's returning, who's even now interceding for us. And one day, think about this, one day the very ground that we're meeting on right now, 
the very ground that we're standing on, it's going to be remade. All the stains and all the scars of sin is going to be removed. And this prayer that we've uttered our whole life for the kingdom to come, it's finally going to arrive. It's, it's going to be here in all of its glory. It's going to arrive finally. Our daily needs will no longer be toiled for, but they'll be provided for all of eternity. We'll live forever in the reality of what it means to be forgiven. There'll be no sin among us to ever forgive again. One day when the kingdom comes, there's not going to be any debts to forgive. They'll all be forgiven. They'll be wiped away. There'll be no fight against temptation for we'll never again desire anything contrary to the will of God. We pray for his will to be done because one day we'll never want to do anything else. And wonderfully, there will be no Satan because he will forever be banished from the presence of God and from God's people to spend forever in judgment and torment. Our Father's fame one day will finally be proclaimed in all of his recreated universe. I don't know what that's going to look like. I imagine it looks a lot better than what it looks like right now. So one of these days, he's going to recreate everything. His name's going to be worshipped as holy for forever. His kingdom will be established forever. His will will fully be accomplished. And then we come to this part. For he... His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's a doxology. It's not in everybody's Bible because most scholars don't think that that phrase was included in the original manuscripts, but it was added later kind of as a praise, almost like, a, it's almost like an editorial comment when whoever was uh, transcribing and copying uh, this chapter of the Bible and whenever they got to the end, they were so happy about what they just transcribed. It's almost like they made an editorial comment and just praised God for his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I think that's a good place for us to stop and wrap up there too. Let us pray tonight. Father, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for everything you've done for us. We thank you for your word that instructs us to do what we're doing right now, Lord, to pray. Lord, many of us struggle in this area of our lives. We, don't, um, we, we fail to come to you daily, to acknowledge who you are, to confess our own sins, our own faults before you. We fail to trust you daily for our daily needs. We fail to acknowledge you in the fight against sin and against Satan. And we stumble because of it, Lord. Help us to refocus our attitudes and our minds and our hearts on what you've called us to do in your word, which is to call on you in prayer because you delight to hear from us. Thank you for that. We praise your name. Pray you be honored and glorified throughout the rest of this time. Bless each one as they go to their homes. Keep them safe. Bring them back again. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Anybody want to lead a song of dismissal? There's no music. No, okay. Well, bless you. Y'all are good to go then. Thank you for being here tonight.